Need storage? No sweat. MakeSpace is storage without the struggle. MakeSpace pros will pick up your stuff, securely store it, and bring it back whenever you need it. They'll even provide free bins, moving blankets, and a digital photo inventory, all included in a great low rate. Save time, money, and hassle. With MakeSpace, getting your stuff in storage is finally easy and affordable. Book your free pickup today at MakeSpace.com. Use code WYL75 for $75 off your first month of storage. Welcome back to the WYL Take Ownership Podcast, where we're all about taking ownership of your mental, your economics, and your community. We're joined today by the esteemed borough president, Eric Adams of Brooklyn, New York. Uh, I want you to say hello to the people at home. How are you feeling today? Good, brother. Good. Uh, and that's a powerful uh, segue into this conversation we're going to talk about, uh, you know, taking ownership. Uh, and, you know, I just love the concept of that. And as we dig into and peel back the layers of what that means, because different things mean different things to different people, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, I, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, just to introduce you to you to me, for folks that, that don't know at home, we haven't even met yet. This is our first opportunity to, to engage. Um, so I'm CEO and founder of Who's Your Landlord. Uh, our whole goal is to empower and to inform the rental community through landlord reviews, housing literacy content, and also software for real estate developers and property managers to better understand and engage their residents. Um, so I know Dominique Pierre-Lewis, our Director of Strategy and Revenue, uh, made the intro here and i um, super excited to have you because I think we can, we can have a real conversation about a lot of things that are happening today, but also too, a lot of things happening right, right in our backyard in Brooklyn, New York. So true, so true. And you know, we should always use uh, different topics to springboard us into the larger topics. You know, as we talk about who's your landlord, uh, the goal is one day to say, hey, I am my landlord, you know, as we did with financial literacy and the real level of uh, building institutional wealth, uh, really for black and brown people come from home ownership. And, you know, what we expect of our landlords, even as the laws are changing, a lot of people are not informed of, you know, the rent, uh, the rent guidelines laws. You know, some people are having their rent increase higher than it's supposed to if you're an affordable dwelling, all of those rules by you doing this podcast is really allowing people to become knowledgeable because knowledge is the new currency. hundred percent, hundred percent. You know, I think that's a perfect segue into like what's, what we're seeing today in real time, right? I know uh, Senator Booker talks about the idea of, you know, black people have been accruing wealth the 50 years leading up to the recession about now a little bit over a decade ago. Um, and and that that recession wiped out all the wealth that was created by black families in those 50 years. Um, and so now, you know, we're in a situation that we're in, we're in a depression and we're seeing that black families, again, are disproportionately affected by what's happening. And to add insult to injury, you have COVID-19, but then you have racism, you know, stoke its own its own flame has been flaming here for 400 plus years. You know, what what is your, your take in terms of how policy needs to be helpful for people right now, understanding what we're understanding regarding home ownership, regarding the eviction crisis, you know, what's your overall just view on things happening right now and how policy affects it? 
And, and it does, it impacts it a lot. And we have to really cycle out of, again, as I said in, at the top of your program, we have to really cycle out of uh, just being uh, renters and move into the space of home ownership. And to many people, uh, that seems you know impossible. And it's very fascinating how the desire of home ownership seemed to have skipped generations because uh, I, it was my mother, I wasn't even thinking about owning a home. And my mother used to say, boy, you better buy something and own it. And if, if anyone who came from the Caribbean, came from the South, this was really embedded into the DNA of our families, owning land, owning your property. And so I thank her, you know, she had a third grade education, uh, but wisdom, is more than academics. And mm -hmm. it, it was because of her that I bought that co-op, then I was able to build up equity and then transition into buying, you know, a brownstone and then uh, buying, you know, another piece of property. And so it was because of that start. And so as we talk about uh, home ownership, I believe that's crucial and there must be a pathway to home ownership because then you do your own thing. Like I bought my, my brownstone and Bedford Stuyvesant, when my tenants moved in, they signed a lease that I signed that said I would never raise your rent while you're here. So they've been with me for about 15 years on the same rent. Mm -hmm. And because I think there's enough for human need, there's just not enough for human greed, as Gandhi once said. And so those are the type of relationships. But here's my ask of them. I need you to take that amount of what the normal rent guideline board says the rent could be increased, and you need to put it in savings because you need to transition out so that you could eventually buy your own place. And we need to start creating uh, real methods to bring people into a place of owning their own homes. So the, what you see play, playing out in Albany and the city council, uh, that is going to just of keep us, you know, to protect us while we are renting. Mm -hmm. But we need to also have legislation moving to the place of home ownership, like the Mitchell Lama programs used to be, where people can sort of build up um, some type of equity in where they live. And I think that is the focus I'm really trying to push for. So regarding that, though, I mean, as as pricing for real estate soars in New York City and has been doing for the last, like, 20 years, um, is is the message and narrative to buy elsewhere, or are, are there are there ways and, and mechanisms now to still be able to buy in Bed Stuy, right? I because because I because I you know my, I'm I'm living in the, on the, the the ground floor of my grandfather's brownstone um, that he was able to pass down to my mom and my aunt, um, but he bought this place for like ten thousand bucks back in the the 60s, 70s, right? right? And so now I, I'm not even sure what it's worth. I could go on Zillow and get a estimate. Zest, zest, but there's wealth in that, right? I might not necessarily have it. That's that's between my mom and my aunt. But mm -hmm. that's the the point is that you know I get to then live and it pay and paying rent. It goes back to my family. So like from that vantage point, what what are your thoughts now in terms of what are some mechanisms out there that can ensure people can still buy in the neighborhood or somewhere around it? Yeah, I like that. And and you know, and just real talk because this is family talking. So we need to have real talk. You yeah. know. Because uh, this is the same conversation I have with my son, who's 24 years old. Uh, he graduated from uh, American University. And I was able to pay Jordan's tuition, $54,000 a year, without him having any student loan because of my home. Mm -hmm. You know, it was the home that allowed me 
to do that and not pile on debt on him, leaving school with a 250,000 plus uh, uh, student loan. But what we have to do, uh, I remember the first day I took him to American University and the number of credit card companies on the campus you know, I stepped to the president of the school. I said, listen, you're destroying the lives of these children, you know, by having all these credit card companies. So we can't wear our wealth, you know, and we have to be honest about that. And when he graduated from college and he says, you know, dad, I want to buy a brownstone. Hey, listen, son, it's not like that. You know, the, <laughs> brownstones are going for 1.5, 1.2. You, you, there's a gradual step. So the first order of business is we need to check our credit scores, you know, are we, you know, is our credit scores in dis disarray? Have we overtaxed ourselves with credit cards, with bills? Uh, are we getting the next Kate Spade bag, bag that came out? Or do we have to get, you know, the next Air Jordans that come out? Because if we wear our wealth, we're never going to have true legacy, legacy wealth. So what I said to him and his friends, you, your three brothers that are starting out, you guys chip in and get a brownstone together and each one of you take a floor. Mm -hmm. And so you save up enough until you could transition and get your own spot. Right now, you know, you're not gonna be able to, if you wanna stay in best side, you're not gonna be able to afford it alone. But you know, you come together and work out relationships. You know, as I talked to one of my pastors, we have a lot of seniors who are transitioning out of their brownstones. And they wanna, they wanna move back to the Caribbean or move back south. So right now, if we partner those seniors up with a young uh, a group of, of young people, make it be a married couple mm -hmm. or whatever, and now start building the relationship that we already know, this is who I'm selling my house to, and this is how we're gonna work out these payment plans. We have to be intentional on transferring this wealth to another generation that can grow up in these communities. No, that's that's facts. And, and what it makes me think about is, I, I often will say to my team, and I often say in public in general, you know, I work as hard as I work, so even mediocre mediocre black people can still succeed the way mediocre white people can succeed, right? right? And so what I get at with that is knowing that the average net worth of a black family in the U.S. is $17,000, and the average net worth, net worth of a white family is 171000 the, the playing field is just drastically different. And so, you know, when we talk about, you know, the, the, the penny pinching that needs to happen and the, the effort around focus and making these decisions around housing and, and accruing wealth, um, I think sometimes it can leave out that, that fact that's so important to highlight. Um, and I, I just, I gotta wonder from a policy standpoint, we hear about reparations and whatnot. Um, what do you think needs to happen? And maybe maybe what we can do is actually focus it on this idea of defunding the police. You have a very particular story with the police and the fact that you, you got you got intrigued by the idea of the change you can make by being a teenager who got beat up by the police. Um, right. And then you go on to, to be in the police force for 22 years, become chief of police, um, and you made a change, you made a difference and impact there. Um, but even now, I think, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you've also you know um, highlighted there needs to be some changing with the, the way police, you know, operate, right? In terms of the budget, in terms of the number of officers, um, and that some of that money can be reallocated, which is really what defund the police is getting at. What's your thoughts on that? I mean, you're 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 running a mayoral race. You're, you're getting ready to get out. You've already been out there. So, like, what's your thoughts on defund the police and what that actually looks like it means? Yeah, and I want to touch that piece, but I want to go back for a moment because you said sure. something very you said something very important when you talk about the economic gap between um, white families and black families. That gap has always been here. Mm -hmm. That's not a new gap. 
So that gap is not something that is unique to this generation. It's been a gap that existed, but we've come from a people that looked at what we had and say, how do we now, uh, you know, make uh, uh, lemonade at a lemon, you know? Mm -hmm. So what we need to focus our mind on uh, the denial and the systemic racism is not unique to any particular generation. You know, our folks came out of the bowels of what real racism is. And in spite of that, uh, they eked out. So I, I just want to tell you a quick story before we yeah, get yeah. started. My, you know, my mom, uh, I remember we grew, we, we were raised on, on 1218 Gates mm -hmm. Avenue, four-story tenement building. You know, rats greeted you every morning <laughs> when you woke up. And, you know, we used to, my mom on the weekends, they'd go upstairs and play, uh, you know, card games, spades. And I remember, never forget, it's like yesterday, mom said, um, to the, her friends that were all in the room, we used to all go up there, and she said, listen, I'm not, I'm not raising my children here. Uh, I'm, I'm buying a house in Queens. And the whole room bust out laughing. They were like, you know, yeah, okay, doc. That was like going to Mars back right. then. And I remember crying that night when we went downstairs to the house, come very close to my mother. And she said, don't worry, baby, we're gonna get out of here. We're gonna buy a house in Queens. And she ironed clothing and used to clean the house of this attorney. And, you know, I used to have to, my job was to test the iron that she put on the stove to make it wasn't, making sure it wasn't too hot. And she would iron clothes, thousands of clothing. She saved up enough money to buy a house in Queens. She went to the closing. And when she got to the closing, the attorney who she cleaned his house for was at the closing and said, what you doing here, doctor? She says, you know, this is my house. She did the closing, went to his house, did her normal cleaning, he fired her. Mm. He says, who do you think you are? Are you buying a house? <laughs> you know, she said, baby, I went into the subway station at 169th Street on the F train and yelled out and cried and screamed. And when the trains went by, she said, I dried my eyes and I went home. She said, I got six children. I got to keep this house. Mm -hmm. I cannot tell you today we did not go to school carrying a glad bag full of clothing. They used to call us the glad bag boys because the, any day the marshal was going to throw us out. And mom didn't want us to be embarrassed by not having a change of clothes. So we used to carry it with us uh, to school. I say that to say racism has always been a problem. Mom still has that house. Nice. I moved her out of that house and gutted it and now, you know, renewed it for her. But she still has that house. And that's the spirit of black people, that we are nice. resilient and we know we got obstacles. We know we got to run a race that we have to jump over more hurdles than the other guy. We're running uphill, they're running downhill. But it's the spirit that we have of resiliency because we're the best of the black race because we made it through the middle passage. You know, that in itself was saying only the best is going to survive. And so we need to always have that, continue to fight the fight, but understand that we could win no matter what. And so when you go into, when you go into the policing conversation, it's so important because it's a powerful, important. I was arrested, as you said, I was arrested at 15. Cops beat us bad. They kicked us in our groin repeatedly. No matter how much we yelled out, uh, no one came to our aid. I still think my brother is going through mental health issues because of what happened that day. And, and it robbed my innocence. You know, I was 15. And uh, policing was supposed to be the symbol of strength. And, um, you know, we pissed blood for a week after that, you know, and we didn't even talk about it again until we became adults. I didn't even tell my mother until I was probably in my 40s. And that is how I got into policing. I didn't want to be a cop. Arthur Miller was killed. He was, he was uh, murdered by 16 cops with a, a chokehold. The leaders of the Black United Front, an organization that I became a part of, 
they came to 13 of us and said, listen, you guys got to go in law enforcement and fight from within. And I went in kicking and screaming. I didn't want to do it. I wanted to be a computer programmer. And eventually I went in. The year I got in in the academy, Eleanor Bumpers was shot and killed by Officer Sullivan, shot in the chest with a shotgun. And so I'm in the academy just in battles every day. And we started an organization, 100 Blacks in Law Enforcement, and fought for reform, you know, all the way through my entire policing uh, agency. And I think it is the intersection, intersectionality of those experiences that put me here now mm -hmm. as we talk about this issue. And, and I believe the coach-player relationship. I'm not the player anymore, man. My knees are old, man. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I can't run up and down the court anymore. I'm the coach now. The, the, I'm so proud of these young people, man, and what they're doing and how they are moving this change. This has been the greatest legislative movement in the history of politics because of these young people. But what I'm saying to them, you know, in this relay race, I'm giving you the baton. Do what I did when I got the baton from Herbert Daughtry and G2Wayusi. Fall to your knees and thank those who ran that first mile for you. Don't look at them and say, listen, you, you're 70, you're 80, you don't understand us, get out of our way. No, show respect in the African spirit of saying, thank you for taking us this mile. And now that I'm taking the baton, I'm gonna take it with this respect and dignity, like Sojourner Truth was handed the, 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 the mantle to Marcus Garvey. Marcus Garvey handed it to Malcolm. Malcolm handed it uh, to Dr. King. Dr. King handed it to Obama. Obama didn't get there because he was bright. He got there because some of the people ran the race. So respect the dignity of your leaders. Don't be like white folks who urinate on their, uh, their elders. We need to respect our elders and keep that synergy and the coach relationship uh, going. So getting right to the heart of your problem, yes, we could, defund, we, could, we could move money out of the police department to be proactive and not reactive. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and you can do it without making the city in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, dangerous. How do you do it? And I'm not trying to monopolize the conversation. No, nah, man, look, you're, we're, we're flowing. You got it. You got it. <laughs> So, so how do you do it? We have uh, uh, 30 plus thousand police officers. And the, the, the most well-kept secret in policing is that too many of them are not doing policing. Mm -hmm. So you hire a plumber, and every time you come home, you see him out watering the garden. It's like, man, I ain't hire you for that shit. You know, I hired <laughs> you to be a plumber. Right, so, right. so we got cops in the barrier detail. We have cops who are in Deputy Commission of Public Information. We have cops being TS operators answering the phones. They're doing everything but policing. So we could decrease the manpower because 90% of the budget of the police come from manpower. So we could decrease the manpower through attrition and then have that, those new dollars go into proactive programs that can prevent crime and not just respond to crime. Like what? 80% of the men and women at Rikers Island don't have a high school diploma. A third of the 18 to 21 year olds read below a fifth grade reading level. 48% have learning disabilities. Uh, think about, hear this for a moment, brother. 40% are dyslexic. Mm -hmm. So if we took money out of the police department and did dy dyslexic screening and, and ensure that people got the right 
um, support that they need, they won't start slinging drugs on the corner, carrying guns, committing crimes. If we identify learning disabilities early, gave the right support, they won't be 55% of the population. So the goal is not only closing the building of Rikers Island, we need to close the pipeline that feeds Rikers Island. And that is how we use the money the right way. They didn't do that in the budget of using the money the right way they played us. They did a three-card money on us, and we need to be clear on that. No, that's real. I mean, I know that a lot of the headlines that came out was that de Blasio had cut the budget by about a billion dollars. Um, that's about 1,100 officers. Um, but there hasn't really been a holistic happiness with what's come about in that $88 billion budget. Um, I, I always re respect how candid you are and how real you are when you speak. And you talked about that bridge between young people and older people and that, that level of respect that's there. You know, I saw that you committed to having your deputy mayor be maybe 18, 19, 20 years old. You know, why do you feel like that's so important and how does that contribute in terms of the growth you're talking about in bridging that gap? That's a great question, brother. And you have several deputy mayors, you know, in office. And I'm going to have a deputy mayor of youth uh, services issues, young. Uh, man, I learned so much, man, when I, like, I do a bunch of Zoom. I must have done about 100, you know, calls. And I do a lot of conversations with young people. And I learned so much, you know. And uh, age is not a reason to think you know it all. Matter of fact, the more I'm learning, the more I realize I don't know. And when I sit down with my young people, you know, people have a tendency to say, I remember, never forget, first time a shorty, he broke my heart. My dad said, <laughs> son, that's just puppy love. I said, well, damn it, it still hurts. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know? Uh, so the drama, <laughs> the drama that young people are going through, you can't dismiss it and say, well, you're young. Yeah, but hey, pain is pain. You know, right. um, crisis is crisis. And so by having young people part of shaping their own agenda in a real way of, you know, how they want to be policed in school, uh, what type of uh, programming they, they, they want, how they want to deal with the city that they're about to inherit. So having that fresh team and going around setting up these real power groups, because you, know you know it's powerful that I, every time I have something here and I tell young people, raise your hand, if this is the first time you're in Borough Hall, and just about the whole room always uh, 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 acknowledge it. So the goal is to create these, uh, these beautiful spaces where people can see their power, man. Mm -hmm. having, my my dep um, deputy mayor of youth, having him holding events in, in City Hall with young people are walking in there saying, you know, this is my City Hall. You know, mm -hmm. that's empowering. Exposure is power. Right, right. No, I, I agree 100%. Um, you know, the, the idea of capitalism and how it's now infiltrated our political system, or not now, it's been doing that for a long time. You know, you talk a lot about the idea of, you know, money being out of politics. And naturally, when you think about New York City, you know, it's a very it's a very diversity but a very segregated one in terms of where people live um knowing that to be the case what what are your thoughts about when you know let's let's fast forward let's say you're 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 in office like how do you go about changing that um or or is, is, is are we too that far down that path like what are your thoughts on that when you say when you say changes that you took my money out of politics yeah or? money out of politics like how do how do we change that or because for new york city you think a lot about developers right we're, we're in the real estate business right but we're community is transparency, and there's also an understanding that the more information we have, the better that this whole space will be. Um, but that being said, you know, when it comes to politics, 
you know, there, a lot of our neighborhoods change in terms, of gentrific in terms of gentrification, not just because people move into these locations, but also because zoning laws change and different things happen um, that are that are driven heavily by developers funding a lot of, uh, you know, our campaigns we see, you know, how, how can uh, any politician in 2020 or 2021 curb the reality of money being in politics the way it is? No, and, and I like that, uh, you know, and I'm the only person in the city that is talking about going to a public uh, finance system. You know, right now, and a lot of people don't understand that the game of, you are judged in politics right now by how much money you raise. Like if you saw the presidential races, you're some qualified people, but they couldn't raise the money, so they had to drop out. And everyone talks about, uh, you know, the bad money, bad money. But when the reporter calls me, the first question they ask, how much money did you raise? Yeah. You know, if it's not that important, why are you, why are you asking me about how right. much goddamn money? <laughs> you know? right. So, you know, we, we have to give money out of politics. Yeah. And the way to do it is to go to a public finance system where anyone should be able to run based on their capabilities. It should never be based on your ability to raise money. And I'm saying this, getting money out of politics, when I'm the I'm the largest person that raised the most money. You know? So people can't say, well, you're saying that because you can't raise the money. No, I've always been able to raise the money as a state senator, as a ball president, and now as a person that's looking to run for mayor. I'm saying it's an unfair playing field. If you come from uh, the pink houses and you you try to get your friends to all write you two, 250 checks, they're like, man, you, are you out of your damn mind? But if you come from the Upper East Side and you know this cats you went to law school with, the cats that your mother is part of her bridge team, it's easy for you to raise that money. So dropping the dollar amount to 250 uh, or 2,000 per person, how many kids with good ideas could get that amount? So we have to take money out. And I'm going to be a leading voice to say we money out of politics, period. I had to make I had to make thirty five thousand calls. You know that time should be spent talking to voters. We should be giving what's called democracy bucks for to residents scattered throughout the city. And I should have to knock on your door and say, "America Adams, I'm running for office." And then after you hear my platform, do you want to contribute? You give me one of those democracy bucks. This forces us to engage with people one-on-one. -on -one. Right now, money runs politics, and I don't care what anybody tells you, that's the reality, but no one wants to take it all the way out. And I say, let's take it all, all the way yeah. out. But you gotta be, you have to have the integrity of your convictions. People have contributed to me from all walks of life because they know I'm not selling out on what I believe or what I want based on what you contribute to me. You do an analysis of my donors, you see uh, uh, over 87% of them are low dollar donors. Uh, they come from all different communities. I have more um, African-Americans, Caribbean, Chinese, Koreans, Sephardics, uh, Russian speaking. I'm the United Nations candidate. Because <laughs> that's what it's about, brother, bridging those gaps. Yeah, it, it makes me think about, so I, I was the vice president of the student body back at Temple during my time there. And I remember when we were running for office, we all had a cap, I think it was like $1,500. And so you couldn't use that, you had to keep all your receipts, you had to submit it to ensure that every student's innovations and ideas could get to the forefront. Um, and it makes you think about the startup journey, right? Like less than 1% of venture capital dollars 
every year goes to black founders. Um, and and that's that's the space we're playing in while knowing in about a 15 year period over a half a trillion dollars was given to companies to then be innovative. So even when we talk about startups and innovation, oftentimes black people, brown people are left out of that conversation, even though we can be the most creative, simply because we don't have the friends and family rounds that get you then to the millions and millions of dollars you can raise thereafter. Um, I, I know we have a bit of time left here, so I'd love to kind of to close out speaking about, you know, the, the linchpin topic that I know we started with, and is that being housing. Um, you know, we're seeing there's 50,000 eviction court cases that will be heard this week in New York City. This is not particular just in New York City. It's happening everywhere. Um, and, and, you know, with the eviction moratoriums being lifted in many places, um, it's, a, it's a dire time for many families, right? And, and when, you, when you hear back, because you can sit on Twitter all day and just read some of the things that are happening in these court cases and, and the, the kind of the callous nature of how these things are going down between the landlords who you understand want, want money, want income, um, and the residents, though, who usually get the brunt of this um, when there's often nowhere else to go. So, you know, I know from, from who's your landlord's perspective, we partnered up with Walmart and they provided us $25,000 towards uh, rent relief. That can only go but so far. I think we've carved out maybe 50 people can, can legitimately see some positivity from that kind of grant. Um, but what needs to be done at a city and maybe state level to help out renters? I mean, is, is there anything that you can see coming down the pike that can still support or, or is it now just we're, we're going to see this, this, these bludgeoning of numbers over and over again until you know the economics kind of play or level back up again. No, I think I think we need to be creative and think outside the box. In fact, we need to destroy the box uh, because um, coronavirus destroyed our lives, particularly Black and Brown people and essential employees who are over seventy percent of Black and Brown. And so uh, uh, we have what's called emergency uh, one shots allocations when people fall back on. Of their rents or they go through other emergency issues on the utility bills. I think right now uh, the city of New York and the state uh, should use those emergency allocations that's normally uh, distributed uh, through our social service agencies. We need to really all those who were impacted by coronavirus, we should pay their back rents to get them whole again so they can have a fresh start and not have a three months uh, four months rent uh, lingering over their heads. I also uh, was able to get the city uh, to allow the use of a person's um, security uh, deposit to have that returned to them and have it paid out over a longer period of time so they could get that em emergency infusion of, of cash. So it's about making people whole. Then we should look at our mortgage, our banks. Uh, we bailed out the banking industry mm -hmm. um, when they were going through hell. It's time to bail out the American people. Our utility companies, they need to do forgiveness on all these gas bills, electric bills, all these bills that folks are paying because the, the New York people and the American people have bailed out these industries and our tax dollars have been used as stimulus for these industries. We need now to be there uh, for the American uh, people. Then we need to look at, I spoke to all of my data data, data companies. Uh, they got to pay a roll. You know, um, you use my personal data. Every time I cough, I'm looking at right. my phone and I'm getting a cough syrup uh, a message. You're using my personal yeah. data. So how are you paying me for that data? And, and, and lastly, everybody didn't hurt because of the coronavirus. And so folks should not try to scam. 
They should try to make sure people who are in need get it. If you knew you were not laid off, if you knew you didn't meet, miss any payment, not everybody was laid off, not everyone missed payment. You know, if you're in the household of a, of a senior who's trying to meet her mortgage payments and you renting one of her, her apartments and you know you didn't miss anything, you should not be saying, well, I'm not paying you rent. I don't care what's going to happen. Because then we're going to lose those homes and developers are going to come in and they're going to make sure that that senior who's living check to check is not able to afford for herself. We have to be there for each other and not play each other uh, during this time. Right. So I, I love that that response. You know, I, I, I was actually recently talking to one of our team members here, Lisa, who's director of our internal ops and communications. And we we're having a conversation around like, it, understanding where we are today and understanding, and now I'm, I'm kind of losing my train of thought, but I'm going to bring it back with your concept here, but understanding where we are today and knowing that, you know, um, capitalism is such a part of these systems of, of what makes us, and this is what I'm going to get at, getting at, you know, right now for people, we're, we're asking Americans to think of humanity first, right? Mm -hmm. To think of each other, their sisters, their brothers first, and that's what we need in this kind of environment. But we're, we're a country that has its own footing on individualism, right? On individual individuality um, and making sure that, you know, we stand out from the rest. And so now we're, we're seeing the crisis around the nation where it's very hard to get even the state to commit to wearing masks, you know, and having their, their residents or their constituents wear masks. And, right. and now the progress that cities like or states like New York has made, Pennsylvania, Maryland, what have you, a lot of those green states are starting to turn yellow again on those maps. Um, because it's very hard to, to keep all that separated. And so what I, what I think about a lot in this moment of time, America has created about 10 plus new billionaires during this COVID um, experience, um, while at the same time, 50 million people now are unemployed. Um, and, and those numbers may continue to go up because a lot of cities that were reopening are now you know, shutting down again. Look at California. Um, I, I do wonder a bit about what, what is next, right? What, what does... What does policy look like moving forward um, with everything post-George Floyd? What does uh, policy look like in terms of understanding, even with like PPP, for example, so many companies that needed it in our communities didn't get it because maybe they weren't, they weren't technically literate. So they weren't online filling out those applications. And, and, and so as a result of that, you know, I think the UC Santa Cruz have put out a study saying 40% of black businesses closed amidst COVID. I, I wonder heavily how much of this is on politicians to fix policy, but with the fact that capitalism is so ingrained in our system, is it even, if it is even possible? Um, and so I don't know, that's not really a question, but I just love to learn how you feel about that. Like what, what are the prospects of the future? And I think the near future first, when you think about housing, policy, money and politics, all those things. No, so true, brother. And, and I, I think you, you really summed it up uh, uh, extremely in, a, in an eloquent fashion of the enormity of the problem we're facing. And we have to really uh, think beyond our scope. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. The thought that we will be talking to each other uh, on a watch and see a picture of a video of us talking was so far-fetched. Uh, but visionaries uh, don't look at the future and see uncertainty. They look at the future and see possibilities. I think there's a great level of possibilities uh, that are here in so many areas. You know, just one thing that I'm looking at right now, uh, of, of going back to the future, turning the city into an agrarian uh, economy. There's no reason we don't have land, but we're always going to eat. 
So why don't we use our rooftops to grow our food, healthy food instead of food that's poisoning? We want to solve the food desert problem. Why don't we use NYCHA as a, as a, a vertical farm and green roof and grow and serve and sell the food right in our schools? So there's a great economy that we're going to have to have to create. Historically, the only way we were able to raise revenue in the city is through taxes. Uh, that is that can't be the only revenue generator. And that's why we're looking at the data in industry. That's why we're looking at making and creating new industries where people can have a future here in the city. And you're right, this is a capitalist country. But I think uh, between Trump and coronavirus, I think it has changed the minds of people to realize uh, that we are in this together. Uh, white folks started losing their jobs. The schools have closed down. Healthcare was not there. I'm seeing them on the food pantry line. They finally realizing what it's like being black in America. And that's why you see such a large number of whites who are walking around with those Black Lives Matter signs. They know what it is to have a, a feeling that you did all you were supposed to do and still you were denied access to the American dream. And that's a wake-up call and a reality. So we have a lot to do. Uh, but I believe there are winners on both sides. There don't have to be any losers. And the right visionary and vision and execution of a plan would get us to where we need to be as a city. And I think potentially as a country. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And the concept I was trying to remember was the idea of does, does the culture have to change first or do the policies have to change first and then lead to the cultural change? Um, so I, but I think you, you, you hit it in terms of what we need to do next and how we have to be thinking about the future and those possibilities and those opportunities. Um, so I want to thank you again, Borough President Eric, Eric Adams. Thank, thank you for rolling through the show. Um, I want to shout out Franz Bowen, our, our producer on the show, Take Ownership, Dominique Pierre-Lewis for making this happen. Again, our Director of Strategy and Revenue, and Ja Fear, who has joined us today, our Growth and Marketing intern. We got a cool crew. Um, again, uh, on behalf of Bur Borough President Eric Adams, my name is Ofo. Thanks for rolling through the WIL Take Ownership podcast. And before I close out, actually, where can people find you and connect with you as they follow your journey over the next year or so? A VP Eric Adams um, on all of my social media handles. If it hasn't changed, my staff changes so much. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but please invite me again. I would love to continue this conversation as we move forward. And I, 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 I'm truly impressed with the depth of the conversation. And this is the type of conversation that's needed as we start to build equity because uh, knowledge is the new currency. 100%. Thanks so much for your time, man. Again, it's the WIL Take Ownership podcast where we're all about taking ownership of your mental, your economics, and your community. Thanks again for joining us tonight. Have a good one. Peace. Peace.